Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Today, we're talking about a remarkable collection of new films by director Steve McQueen called Small Axe. The five Small Axe films have been released gradually on Amazon, finishing today with the release of the fifth and final film. It's a fascinating and ambitious chronicle of West Indian experience in London in the 60s through the 80s personal, political, and cultural, and it's definitely an event. To discuss all five of them, I needed an extra-large episode and two guests. First, veteran critic and longtime guest Jonathan Romney joins me to talk about Mangrove and Lover's Rock, which are about an infamous trial and a joyous night of partying, respectively. We'll also hear a little about some other great films Jonathan saw at the IDFA Festival. Then, on the second half of the podcast... I'm joined by critic Nicholas Russell. We discuss McQueen's approach in the three remaining films in the Small Axe series, Red, White, and Blue, Education, and Alex Weedle. There's too much more to describe here, so without further ado, let's go to the discussions. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. We're going to be talking about a, a couple of movies in particular, and then, as usual, looking over what we've seen recently, uh, and for this episode, uh, I'm very pleased to be joined after, I guess it's been a, been a few months, um, very pleased to be joined by, uh, Jonathan Romney. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. You're, you're in, in London currently, and, and I guess it's been as much of a, a life in quarantine there as, as it is for, for me here in, in New York most of the time. It has, yeah, actually, um, you know, a cold London autumn is already setting in. But actually, last time we spoke, I was in Venice in the middle of the festival. So, you know, this was one of two festivals in the year that I managed to get away to, which came as kind of a glorious release, uh, especially because the weather was great there. So I was in Venice, and then I was in San Sebastian. And then I came back and quarantined for two weeks in London. But and then it's been back to normal because we're in our second lockdown. And um, as I've been doing for most of this year, I've been watching everything on, um, you know, a small screen in my apartment, you know, and that has been the norm this year. And what's really strange about it is I wonder whether the films that I actually remember from this year will only be the ones that I saw on a big screen, because I'm already getting the feeling mm. that a lot of the stuff I saw on a small screen somehow didn't connect with me in the same way, because... The others, you know, I can remember talking to someone after the screening or seeing it in a particular place. You know, so when people talk about how seeing films on a big screen make a difference, it's usually, you know, the very least because you've got some some outside reference. You know, you remember going for a meal afterwards or having a drink or, you know, you remember being uncomfortable in the particular cinema seat you were in. Whereas, you know, just watching things at home, you know, you're always sitting on the same sofa, you're always watching on the same screen. Somehow, whatever you're watching, to some degree, it's always the same. I'm actually very, very glad to hear you say that because I, I had a sneaking suspicion of the same for, for, for my experience watching things on 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 the on the laptop screen or sometimes even if i'm watching it on the tv i don't know if there's just some also requirement for memory that 
you know, the movie image has to occupy a certain amount of real estate in your, <laughs> in your head or just be bigger than you to have the same kind of, I don't know, momentous impression on your brain in, in some way. But yeah, I, I also kind of fear that it's all going to be one long stream <laughs> that, that I'm not going to be able to pick things out of. And also, you know, a lot of films have been coming out this year and, you know, certainly sort of the streaming sector has boomed, whether anyone's actually making a living out of it, um, apart from Jeff Bezos, you know, we don't really know. But, you know, one of the, the extraordinary things is that all these films are coming out, we're being bombarded with stuff, but very few have had the chance to stand out from that torrent because, you know, it usually takes something else for a film to stick in your mind. And even, you know, even the idea of walking around town and seeing a poster on a wall telling you that a particular film is out. You know, when when we talk about a film being out, we mean that it's out in the world, you know, that it's in cinemas or on walls or people are talking about it or filmmakers and actors are going to, you know, hotels and doing interviews and standing up on stages at festivals. And that's what it means. The film is out. It usually means it's out in the world and people can actually be aware of its presence for so many reasons. Whereas now it seems like so many films are just sort of surreptitiously creeping into people's rooms or creeping onto their screens, but they don't have the same sort of, you know, external real world status that makes something feel that it's actually alive. This may be really old fashioned of me to see things this way. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it seems like it's just also just a part of the way we live, for, for, for lack of a better word. I mean, I had the same feeling about, you know, we, we had a little election <laughs> and it was a little surreal thinking that so much of it was taking place. I mean, in a very real way, virtually, just because the same amount of campaigning yeah. was not taking place. Um, and, you know, obviously I would hear, or you, you know, you could read about rallies taking place or something like that. But I, I mean, it's just a fact that it wasn't alive in the same way. And, you know, obviously people were moved enough to vote in record numbers. But, yeah, you can't help feeling that there's something missing. Not to put down the different cultures and forms of existence online, uh, but, yeah, for movies... Uh, I'll, I'll definitely be happy <laughs> whenever there's a time they exist outside. Also, there's the fact that this year so many extraordinary things have been happening in the world that in a way I think we also felt that maybe movies weren't that important unless in some way they reflected or commented on what was happening in the real world directly or indirectly. And actually, that's a really unfair pressure for any film. You know, a film sh should not necessarily have to be of its time or should not necessarily have to be, um, to use that terrible phrase, that, that was really big in the 70s, this word, relevant. You know, it now, I mean, as a critic, I, I'm beginning to feel that, you know, if you're getting excited about something that is not somehow relevant to the state of the world, you know, it's considered a bourgeois indulgence. But, you know, there is there is politics, but there is also art. And I think we, uh, you know, we neglect one to the detriment of the other. But, you know, I can imagine that also being interpreted as the words of a reactionary aesthete, which I hope it doesn't sound like. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's definitely a, you know, a delicate 
um, delicate dance, figuring that out. I mean, our first subject uh, for, for the episode is probably a kind of a per- amazingly uh, perfect and apt fit in the sense that it's it's of the moment and yet, of course, you know, was filmed uh, before most of this year. So uh, so anyway, I mean, I'm talking about the small axe films, uh, which originally I mean, from my perspective, originally are a BBC suite of presentations that are sh- showing on TV in the UK um, and also, I guess, worldwide uh, on Amazon. And also a little bit having an existence on on actual theater screens because of their premiere uh, in the New York Film Festival. Yeah, well, they've just started um, screening on the BBC, and uh, they also played um, two of them played in the London Film Festival earlier this year. And basically, they are films about the Black British experience over several decades. And many of them, if not all of them, are telling stories that have not been told before. And the first one I saw, Mangrove, is about an extremely important historic trial when uh, the Mangrove restaurant in uh, West London, in Notting Hill, which had become you know, really not just a kind of headquarters for um, West London's Afro-Caribbean community, but had also become a kind of central hub of political debate and political thought. And it was constantly being busted uh, very violently and with great prejudice by the uh, Metropolitan Police. The the people who um, founded it, Frank uh, Critchlow, played in the film by Sean Parks, and the people who were working with him and uh, defending uh, its right to exist were um, charged with what was called riot and affray for, for demonstrating against the uh, police action. And there was a court case, which is the basis of a film that's sort of essentially uh, quite a traditional courtroom drama. Well, what's important about it is that, you know, this story has not been widely told in mainstream British culture. And a lot of people viewing it will not know about the story at all. And extremely important figures in it include Darkus Howe, who became a major media figure over the decades that followed, but was um, a, a barrister who uh, was one of the accused, uh, one of the people in court, and you know an extremely uh, central voice in um, British Afro-Caribbean culture. So one of the things that the film has going for it is that it is an incredibly important story to tell right now. It is uh, a story that has not been sufficiently told. And it is a story that is extremely well told by Steve McQueen and co-writer Alastair Siddons. However, I've got to say, in many ways, it still felt to me very much like quite a traditional courtroom drama. It's not just a courtroom drama, of course, because there's a lot of action around it, a lot of action in the restaurant and in the streets around it. And the sense of, you know, London in the um, late 60s, early 70s, West London is vividly captured. And, and, and the sense of London's black community at that time is vividly captured. But at the same time, there's, there's a kind of 
slightly didactic awkwardness to it, um, the um, bigotry expressed by uh, the constable who who is um, at the forefront of these raids, played by Sam Sproul. He is, I think, you know, struggling against, you know, what comes across as a kind of cardboard cutout of, of a British racist cop of that period. Now, you know, you can imagine that this is actually a very accurate representation of what the police were doing at the time and how the police thought and yet dramatically it felt it felt clumsy things were being underlined you know in a very broad pen you know it's it's it's, it's interesting I, I i definitely felt that it benefited from strong performances especially from sean parks who maintains this level of justified, you know, <laughs> outrage and, and rage that is just a force of its own. Um, but the flip side of it being the fear of, of, of being trapped in this situation and carrying a, a certain burden. And I think he, he just infuses it with such energy that it, it exceeds the kind of courtroom drama template and the template of just like justice being being served. In terms of evaluating a, a, a story or a drama like this, I is is there a way in which you know racism on screen and and racists like maybe they just don't always make for artistically satisfying stories no absolutely you know and it's the real problem and how how have films try, you know how have kind of traditional liberal movies have tried to solve the problem of you know, how do you represent racists? They cannot in any way be sympathetic. They cannot in any way be nuanced because racism is not sympathetic and it's not nuanced, you know, by its nature. And yet certain uh, liberal movies have tried to deal very, very awkwardly in a way that I think, you know, invariably makes us cringe, you know. By, but they've tried to deal with it by having the idea that, you know, underneath the racist is actually, you know, a real human being who, you know, if only they could, they could meet uh, the people they hate, they would learn to understand. But, you know, and that's why you get movies like In the Heat of the Night or more recently Green Book, where, you know, someone is simply in a very kind of, you know, comforting way, shown the error of their ways. And, and sort of shows their humanity and you kind of think well mm, yeah you know well wouldn't it be nice but what's more interesting in fact in in mangrove is actually the question of the british legal system and the court and the question of justice that somehow resists being done and yet you know ultimately somehow you hope can be done, uh, which is why, rather than that very, I felt, crude figure of the racist cop, you know, you have, let's say, the in entrenched institutional racism of a figure like the judge, played by played brilliantly by Alex Jennings, but he's more interesting because you're talking about how he embodies the racism of a system, rather than pointing at a particular figure on screen and saying, you know, this man is a racist, which is less interesting. There, that that comes up. That's one of the arguments that almost that that the that the uh, their lawyer Ian McDonald, played by Jack Loudon, 
uh, he, you know, when they're doing jury selection, he says, well, basically this should be an all black jury because, you know, citing the precedents going back to the Magna Carta, you know, someone should be judged by a jury of their peers and the only peers who could really uh, relate or, you know, understand uh, what, what the, 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 the black suspects have gone undergone would be, you know, a jury of other, other black, uh, black citizens. So that's, you know, that's, that's, that's in a kind of legalistic way is, is, is another way uh, that, that that comes across that there is something kind of systemic about it. I did have a problem too, a bit with, with Sam Spruill's uh, PC pulley, I'm almost more struck by just the one or two other officers there that don't really get identified, just being kind of callously offhand about, uh, yeah. you know, about a, a kid being taken in. Because there, it's like you don't you don't have some pathology because there's almost like an implied pathology to to this policeman that you know he couldn't get promoted, he couldn't take the exams or something, and he just harbors this resentment, but. Isn't it worse if it's just something that's systemic and is just shared by the entire force for no other reason than just because that's the way it was done? And indeed, the, the, you know, the, the danger is, um, you know, the voice that sort of denies racism, you know, and says, oh, no, we're just doing our job. We're not racist. You know, it's the classic thing. And it's almost like a kind of cliche in London, you know, when you constantly hear, you know, taxi drivers say, I'm not racist, but... And they, and of course, you know, they believe they're not racist, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing I just want to mention along these lines is that I think McQueen recognizes, uh, for one thing, he has this shot of the dome, I guess it's in the Old, old Bailey, I'm not sure, where there's a mural, uh, and on one side it says truth, and one side it says art. And I don't know, I don't want to read too much into that, but I was just struck by including that and, it's it's almost as if to say, you know, you can get art, you can get truth, um, and maybe my duty here is to show the truth and the facts of this history. Mm. So I don't know that sort of thing. And then this interesting eruption in a montage that happens. Do you know the black and white montage of locations, kind of showing like different neighborhoods that that kind of just comes up once at one point. Yeah, I didn't identify that. Actually, um, what I was aware is that a lot of the scenes in uh, Notting Hill were actually quite cleverly recreated in what I recognise as a completely different part of town. And I just know that it doesn't have quite the same feel. And of course, you know, you can't really recreate Notting Hill then by filming in Notting Hill now, because the place has, you know, as we know from the name of the movie, the other movie, Notting Hill, you know, it has become so gentrified. And of course, that was a film that completely disguised the fact that it's a part of London historically known for its black community. You know, you wouldn't have known that from that film. So actually, in a sense, seizing back Notting Hill as the hub of a black British culture, you know, is itself uh, very politically important. And, you know, it's still identified with black culture because of the annual carnival. It's something that's not going to be let go of easily. Certainly from my knowledge of Notting Hill, you know, I I knew it from the late 70s. It It doesn't sort of feel quite the same, but... You know, I think the film does very well to to recreate something, to evoke something of that feel. It just pretty lovingly puts in all this detail uh, and just figures of speech too. They're just just terrific, and the feel of the restaurant. You know, with 
filled with people and, 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 and joy. And, and at one point when things spill out with a steel drum, small steel drum procession and, and a dance, um, yeah. there's just a freeness and an energy to that. That's, you know, in such marked mark yeah. contrast to obviously to, to the courtroom and everything else. I did, I did think that was pretty impressive. Yeah. But, um, but actually al- along those lines, I wonder if that's a good moment to talk about uh, another movie in the Queen's series here, which is Lover's Rock, which I think does that even more fully and, and is kind of almost experimental as being this kind of one night, a, a one night movie, you know, in that kind of genre. Um, yeah. But you, you, yeah. Were all, you were a, a big fan of, of Lover's Rock, right? I think Lover's Rock is terrific. I mean, it's it's an out-and-out masterpiece, I think. And, you know, I watched it on my TV screen, and I just wish that I could have seen it on the big screen. Because, actually, one of the things that's really interesting about it is, um, I think throughout his filmmaking career, Steve McQueen has tended to identify himself as two different people you know one is the gallery artist he started out as and has continued to be and the other is the filmmaker who makes you know approachable narrative films but i think this is this is the work where the two strands really fuse and some of the great moments in this film really felt like very very good very intense uh, and involving gallery arts so this is uh, a film about um, a blues party, uh, a reggae night in, um, in a house in West London. And a young woman sort of sneaks out of her parents' house, a young woman called Martha, played by uh, Amara Jane St. Aubin. And she goes to this party with her friend, Patty, and they dance and they go in and it's a night of different so there's a sound system and you've got different kinds of music you've got uh, kind of heavier dub reggae and you've got lovers rock which is you know very beautiful mellifluous tender music but also what is revealed when you, you see it being danced to on this very crowded dance floor is this is both extremely romantic music and it's also extremely sexy. And where the film becomes, you know, incredibly tender and incredibly intimate is when the camera moves in and it sort of moves across the dance floor and sort of weaves through the crowd. But you'll see kind of hands on hips and, you know, hips getting closer to hips and, you know, lovers and potential lovers start to kind of brush against each other in this extremely erotic way. And it's incredibly erotic, tender movie. But you might also say it's also, you know, I mean, you know, at the risk of saying this is a a more achieved film than Mangrove because it's it's about uh, emotions and, and and. it feels more like art, you know, that may seem to kind of depoliticize it. And yet it really is, you know, it's a very political film because it's about a particular culture creating itself in its own terms at that particular moment. And it becomes, um, I think someone said about the mangrove restaurant itself, that it was a kind of, you know, an autonomous decolonized zone. And and that's what mm. this world is, I think, in, in Lover's Rock. You know, it is a place of freedom and it's a place of self-realization and and emotional and erotic um, 
self-realization. I think one of the problems with it is there is kind of an element of plot and an element of conflict which which doesn't quite fit. Uh, there's this little kind of narrative in which the kind of cool cat who who kind of looms on the dance floor, obviously the kind of the house Lothario, then turns nasty and has to be driven away. And it, it felt kind of uncomfortable. It's like somehow the film could not be allowed to simply tell a love story and sort of couch it in, you know, place it in this sort of, you know, one night only utopia. I think that in itself would have worked without necessarily the conflict. But, you know, it has one of the great moments uh, of cinema this year which is the cinema dance floor in which the crowd gets completely caught up in the high notes that Janet Kay sings on her hit Silly Games. And uh, I think, you know, everyone who sees this film is just going to get completely, you know, that song and that performance and those notes are just going to haunt them. A very, very beautiful, and it really is a genuine depiction of, of ecstasy. No, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's it's so hard, I think, to, to, to capture, capture that. A party, a scene of a party, you realize just how flat they have all been, or so many of them have been, uh, it, when you watch this, because it has, its, it has an energy of its own. It has also, I think McQueen is able to capture the way that a a party or a dance party kind of has these ebbs and flows and different moods, you know, sometimes having to do with music, sometimes not. There's just a feeling in the air. I mean, you really feel like you're, you're in there. You can feel the humidity of, 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 of the room almost. I, yeah, I also love the silly games uh, moment, which it's, it's, it's kind of cute in the very beginning, the kind of older women are, are, are cooking uh, and they're, they're already kind of singing the song before the party has even started um, the beginning of the movie. Sorry, I was going to say, and actually there's a tiny moment, there's a cameo um, by Dennis Bovell, who was, um, you know, the producer behind that record and uh, who also became one of the kind of crossover figures of uh, British dub and, you know, the post-punk avant-garde. So, you know, he was the guy who created those kind of experimental neo-reggae sounds, you know, on the records by the Slits and the pop group. So an incredibly, you know, pivotal figure in British music at the time. And he has this little cameo in the film playing kind of, you know, the sort of resident elder statesman figure. That's amazing. I, I would I would never notice that. That that's really to something else I was gonna say, which is later in 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 the music when they are kind of playing this almost yeah, much, much moodier and almost, I don't know, kind of saturnine, uh, you know, dub and reggae. And there's a moment where the cousin of one of the women that we've seen early on uh, that we're following, um, he comes in and kind of has an argument and uh, but he comes to the dance floor and he just has this, you can tell he's just kind of aggro and someone notices it. And I, I think goes over and gives him a, a joint. I, I'm not sure. Just realizing, or yeah. a beer or something. Yeah. Realizing, okay, he needs to be kind of like, he needs to be incorporated into yeah. the current energy of the party because he's a little coming coming yeah. in hard. Um, and, and I love that, the way that, you know, a party can kind of absorb that, the music. And so, I mean, Lover's yeah. Rock, that was a, how much was that kind of, 
cracking into main, mainstream or is this oh completely yeah completely from uh, you know the early to the mid 70s you know these were massive hits and you know there were a lot of lovers rock artists who didn't get into the mainstream charts and then you had records like like silly games which absolutely did but it was definitely a genre which was there and you know, had a big kind of mainstream pop following. One of the things I love about this film also is the idea that they're all on the dance floor. And, you know, clearly in in this particular scene that he's showing us in this particular house, you know, there is not that kind of snobbery that, you know, we now kind of tend to associate with club culture where everything has to be the most recondite, you know, kind of remix of something or other, that they're all dancing to... Kung Fu Fighting um, by Carl Douglas, which is an absolutely kind of ridiculous but totally joyous kind of, you know, cash-in records celebrating, you know, the kind of um, the moment when uh, everyone was into uh, Bruce Lee. And, uh, you know, here comes the big boss. Oh, let's get it on. And it's, you know, just one of the great sort of 70s pop moments. Fantastic record, you know, just incredibly... But, you know, the, the way that you also you get the sense of just how important it is for Martha to be at this party and, you know, to get there and then sort of get home and back into bed the next morning because then she's going to have to be, you know, kind of respectable for a Sunday morning in church and that. You know, the idea that, you know, it's not just leisure, it's the most important thing in the world. Yeah, there was a sense of absolute genuine liberation about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't even. Yeah, the the ending is so perfect. I don't even want to give it away for anyone who's seen it. It's just, yeah. In in, in a nutshell, that entire feeling you're you're describing, yeah. um, getting away with something wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah. I found it sweet the love story that basically occurs when she meets someone at the party and he takes her to a garage to hang out for a bit and and his boss comes in um, but they you know they're able to have a moment before the before she has to take the bus home. I I, I just found that quite sweet and and, and romantic. Yeah, and the boss is awful because he pulls rank on him. This is Franklin Michael Wood. Um, yeah, and the boss comes in and. You know, it's just really sort of heavy-handed, and it sort of it kind of sours the moment, and yet it doesn't because you know that you know nothing can really destroy this this moment of perfection. In fact, it's really interesting. You know, one of the great things about it, what makes this so rare, is that you know it's a film about happiness. You know, how often do you see a film about happiness that that actually means something? Yeah, and that I mean that goes back to what what you said at at, at the outset that it is a, this is a, a political film, and I, and I think it's showing its joy is is a political, <laughs> it, it, you know, is, is part of what's political about it. And in an odd way, I think the way it landed this year uh, somehow felt, for lack of a better word, uh, you know, energizing and, and a relief, just because it is such a tactile piece of filmmaking, uh, you know. It, Everyone had had a few months of not being in such gatherings and not being close to people. So that's another way where kind of specific to the, the time period happens to be coming out. I mean, who, who would have guessed that? Mm. So really looking forward to seeing the other films in the series. Yes, me too. And I just also just wanted to mention uh, for Lovers Rock and for, for these films generally, the, I mean, the work of the cinematographer. Shabir Kirshner. Yes. Yeah. 
I think the the work, you know, that that party scene is is again just such a tactile um, interior, and 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 holding on to that energy. I guess that's partly handheld work in there. Um, and then oh, one other thing I wanted to ask, just to hear what you thought about this little detail in the movie. When they get off the bus, there's a man who is reassembling a cross. Yeah, and it does kind of carry the flag for the heroine, really, because here's someone who, you know, she is kind of committed to that religious observance on a Sunday morning, but she's also, you know, she finds herself in that kind of, you know, deep emotion and deep carnality, and, you know, for two are not incompatible. Why should they be? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's definitely true. I'm just, it's interesting to me fitting this into McQueen's just general career. And he's curious, as you mentioned, he has these two sides to him. I mean, on the one hand, he's about as uh, oddly, is about as an establishment figure as you would get in the sense that he's won the Oscar for Best Picture, which is kind of how people are yeah. ordained, um, you know, in a Hollywood context for 12 years a slave. And at the same time, he has the gallery background. But it's just very interesting to me that his feature debut would have been Hunger, maybe the most raw amalgam of a gallery background and kind of art art film. Um, some of it just being, I just think of the the, the walls in that movie, <laughs> uh, in, the, in the, of yeah. the way they protested by smearing on the walls. Those are like mm-hmm. paintings within that movie. Yeah, I... You know, I was very worried with uh, 12 Years a Slave. I mean, I thought it was an extraordinary film, but I thought, you know, he can really go down the path of, of a much more sort of accessible mainstream language, which might make him much less interesting as an artist than as a filmmaker. Um, and that was exactly the trouble with Widows. And I thought, I felt he wasn't quite comfortable with the idea. He wasn't quite willing either to make it a straight down the line mainstream thriller or to to follow his promptings as an artist. And you know, it's it's a film with incredible sequences that didn't add up to a film. I mean, there are great moments in that film which are extremely rich and uh, you know make you feel deeply uncomfortable but I can't remember a whole film there somehow and I think one of the things about Small Axe is you know among other things it's a conceptual project you know the idea of I am going to make five completely different films about different aspects of the same central idea you know, in many ways, this sounds more like an artist project than a conventional filmmaker's one. You know, it's incredibly ambitious and adventurous and daring. Well, um, I think we can maybe we can wrap up with Lovers Rock. So, uh, th- of of course, you know, we've also been watching uh, other other movies, um, some new, some old. Um, I probably have seen fewer festival films than Jonathan you you have and you mentioned one um, we were prepping that sounded pretty intriguing uh, I think I heard about it an Iranian film called The Wasteland yeah which I think it's the second film by uh, a director called uh, Ahmad Barami and it won the other Vipreski Prize in Venice so there was one for the competition films which went to an extraordinary film Indian film called The Disciple, which I know is going to get talked about a lot more. But the other one, the the prize for the other sections went to this film. And someone described it to me as Iranian Belatar. I thought, oh, right, okay, well, so we'll have to call it the Tehran horse. 
Um, <laughs> it turns out that this is kind of close. It's more accurate than than I could have imagined because um, you know I can't believe that this filmmaker is not uh, conversant with the works of Belatar and in, in some ways, to some degree, paying tribute to him. There is also a horse in it, and there are some kind of slow trotting scenes, which, which are a bit like that particular Bellatar film. But what's particularly Tar-like about it, and, and actually the, I have to say that Barani completely uses the language of those Tar films absolutely in his own way. First of all, the black and white photography, some of the extended takes, and in particular the way that some of the scenes repeat and then uh, are kind of let's say, layered over each other, somewhat in the style of Satan Tango, where you see certain scenes repeated, but shot from different angles and kind of, you know, uh, laid over each other, overlaid like, um, you know, kind of like roof tiles, um, if, you, if you see what I mean. Uh, and basically, mm. it's, it's about the last days of a brickworks um, in the middle of this rather kind of desolate landscape and a man who who has worked there all his life, uh, knows that he's going to have to leave and all the people he knows are going to have to leave. And the woman he loves, who is in fact the mistress of the boss of the Brickworks, who's let everyone go and he's moving on to his own life and he clearly doesn't care about anyone. And there's an amazing repetition of, of, you know, particular scenes in the boss's office where people come and sit and talk to him and then boss gets up and moves over to the window and looks out. And then it keeps going back to the moment where he's uh, announcing to everyone that uh, their, their life is going to be shut down there. And at the end of the film there's a very long, slow, deliberate and absolutely desolate moment in which uh, the main character responds to what's happening to him uh, in a way that will certainly put you in mind of certain Bellatar films. And, you, you know, you will kind of leave the cinema um, altogether shattered, I think. But it's, it's, it's a very beautiful, disturbing, very bleak film, very desolate, but it has, you know, as many of the greatest slow films do, it has a sort of, I think, a deep poetic truth about it. And, and one of the truths, I think, is, is that, you know, cinema and, and indeed art are not necessarily about making us feel better about the world or about ourselves. You know, sometimes uh, they take us to very, uh, very desolate places. And um, this is probably not a year in which we've wanted to go to some of those places. I mean, I have to say personally, hmm. I've, I've found, you know, my, my tastes have slightly changed this year in that I've had the chance to watch a lot of difficult experimental stuff uh, on streaming platforms, and as often as not, I've I've gone straight to the comfort of entertainment, or um, you know, lighter stuff, or uh, long form, you know, Netflix endless narrative. But this was one of the few, let's say, difficult films, if you like, that absolutely grabbed me from the beginning, and it has this very hypnotic quality. 
and whatever uh, Ahmad Barani might or might not owe to Bellatar, um, you know, he has made a film that is absolutely his film and I think incredibly powerful. And I can't wait to see more by him. Yeah, that's well, that's definitely something I wish I, I had seen. I'll, I hope it somehow materializes on one of the uh, streaming plat- platforms, I guess. Uh, so that, yeah, that's The Wasteland. Then you mentioned uh, another movie that sounded also quite interesting. Oh, yeah. This, this was in um, Idfa, and it's a film from Hong Kong made anonymously, for obvious reasons, by a group who simply call themselves HK Documentary Filmmakers. There are no credits in the film because, obviously, it's kind of politically dangerous to name yourself So it's basically about the protests in Hong Kong, a particular episode in the protests last year, uh, which was the siege of Hong Kong's Polytechnic University during the protests um, against the extradition bill and uh, the call for autonomy and holding out uh, against the, um, the influence of the mainland Chinese government. So it's basically about the, the siege in which uh, protesters went inside the university and were sieged within the campus by uh, the police. And I don't know how many uh, camera operators were present. I don't know how, how it was made. But basically, you know, here, here are the filmmakers there with the protesters, very much as part of the protest filming what's going on minute by minute. And among other things, I mean, it is the most extraordinary feat of editing. There's a vividness about it. There's an intensity about it. You know, basically, we're we're used to seeing uh, events like this captured in bursts of news footage. We very rarely see on-the-floor reportage in this extended fashion. I mean, the film is uh, 88 minutes. They also made a 47-minute film called Taking Back the Legislature, which is about the occupation of the um, the legislative... Um, I'm not sure what the building is called. And, you know, you're there. You're absolutely um, at the heart of it. You're, you're, it really is genuinely immersive, uh, you know, that you're there in the crowd when uh, they're facing police attacks, water cannon, rubber bullets, tear gas... And there's a fascinating theme running throughout is, is that, you know, the, the protesters are, are playing their own music to, uh, to kind of taunt the police, uh, like, you know, the rap number, fuck the popo. But at the same time, the police are trying to demoralize them by playing pop songs, usually kind of, you know, sort of rather sugary ballads, but they've got titles like Surrounded and Ambush from Ten Sides. So, you know, there's a rather kind of, you know, well, if you've, uh, okay, well, the police are being sort of exceptionally brutal, but they're actually being quite witty as well. Um, but it's an incredibly, it's an incredibly powerful film. And, you know, you are really, there is a sense of being there live. And one of the extraordinary things about it is, you know, you're also aware of, of it as a kind of, uh, digital face-off because, you know, everyone is on their phones, everyone's on social media while it's happening. You see these screens on the walls which are kind of divided up showing, you know, umpteen different TV channels and, you know, live news streams at once. You know, I think it's a really important protest film 
very, very electrifying and, and, and disturbing. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the comparisons was, was um, uh, uh, Sergei Loznitsa's film Maidan about the, uh, the protests in Kiev. But there's a kind of rigor and a detachment there, um, however close he gets to the action. Whereas here, you know, you're in it. You know, the, the filmmakers' cameras are exactly the same as the phones that the protesters are using. You know, they have they have the same status. They are they are there filming. Uh, I mean, presumably some of it's filmed on phones as well. No, this sounds this sounds very in- intriguing. It, I mean, it, it does sound like a a novel variation on on a protest documentary in the way it's it's in the fray and and also capturing the you know social media media aspect. There's a fair number of Arab Spring documentaries uh, where you know obviously you know cell phones or social media were a way that those kind of achieved a critical mass, but that's just an inciting event or inciting presence. You don't get necessarily a sense of how it continues and, and the way people are interlinked. I don't know. It sounds a little bit like this documentary gets gets into that. And all I remember from the news footage of those events is just, I couldn't believe what, what I was seeing and, and the extent that protesters had to go to, to, you know, to, in terms of either concealing their identity and that whole back and forth, very, very yeah. intrigued to see this. And you see them, you know, debating with each other about, you know, what they should do, you know, not just, you know, the political strategy, but, you know, the basic questions like, do we stay here or do we try to leave? Because if we try to leave, people can get killed. You know, is it safe to step outside? You know, we're not just going to be arrested, but, you know, people are likely to get killed. And indeed, you know, uh, people did get killed. So at some of those um, events, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, it really feels like not just a political matter in any kind of abstract way, but absolutely a matter of life and death. There's there's a kind of urgency to it that, you know, I really haven't seen in uh, many documentaries of that kind. Yeah. There's uh, one other documentary you mentioned that I can actually... I actually have something I, I, can, I can say from seeing it. It's called... I don't even know how to say this. It's just called... It's called, it's called Gorbachev's Heaven. Yeah, there's a weird period in there for some reason, <laughs> at least in my yeah. I have written here. This is another uh, movie at, at IFA, and it's basically a excerpts from from an extended series, I guess, series of interview visits and and tagalongs uh, with with Gorbachev by Vitaly Mansky, who's who's a filmmaker. I've always been pretty interested whenever whenever he comes out with something. Uh, you, you've seen like Red Army and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I haven't seen his work before, and this one's really extraordinary. It's a very elderly Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, in his home, uh, which sort of feels like it's it's like the Fortress of Solitude, you know. It's it's a kind of big mansion that's clearly protected, uh, and he clearly has a staff, uh, you know, looking after him, and he is someone who has been immensely powerful. And still has that prestige, but you know he's a, a, a an old man. Uh, he's widowed. The house is full of portraits of his wife Raisa, and you know the film makes it very clear that you know this was a great partnership, a great love story. So the way he's shot sometimes, you know, plays up an element of. Pathos. It actually reminded me somewhat of The Irishman, you know, the, in, in, in a kind of different light, you know, the idea that, 
you can you can be incredibly powerful and at the center of everything but you know one day you will be old and you will be sitting in a chair and you will be you know walking with the frame and then what does it all mean but of course here we're dealing with someone who changed the world and uh, you know they can't take that away from him yeah even though it sort of ended up being not perhaps the world that he dreamed of not and certainly not the russia that he dreamed of yeah, and that's that's also what's so interesting about seeing him there. I, I mean, I was fascinated by his reactions to any attempt to kind of drill a bit deeper into the moments and, and the responsibilities surrounding the, the, the collapse of, of the Soviet Union. And, and I mean, he definitely has a certain story about it, He's but he's clearly just completely buried any idea of really like finger pointing or... Um, or definitively saying this or that about, I, I don't know, I was kind of fascinated by how much he, he stuck to that position. So it's not like we, we get too much behind the scenes insight of like, what exactly was it like when, you know, you're, you're detained and there's a coup or, and, and what actually happens, you know, it's, I don't know how, how you interpreted that, but that's, 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 that's how it came across to me. It's just, he has a legacy um, and he's, he's not about to try to, play along with like detective work about why it, it then led to, to Putin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is one, I thought, terrible rhetorical gesture the film makes, which it makes very, very insistently. And I just kept thinking, okay, enough, we got it. And that's that he, Mansky often frames him talking with a TV set in the background. And that TV is always showing footage of Putin who later right. in the film gives an absolutely the most kind of leadenly unjoyous New Year's <laughs> Eve address you can imagine. <laughs> but yeah, okay, we got it. What Gorbachev achieved led to Putin and Putin is now, Putin probably is always on TV, but, um, <laughs> you know, he makes this point far too many times uh, to, to diminishing effect. Uh, but the film is so much better than the interview film that Werner Herzog did with uh, Gorbachev a couple of years ago, which was the most sort of simpering act of hero worship. Uh, and he doesn't ask any interesting questions at all, or, or he fails to pick up on the things that Gorbachev says, whereas Mansky, you know, kind of gets his, his claws in and, and he kind of sticks with it. And, you know, he gives him a tough time. You know, he asks the hard questions. He doesn't always get the answers, but he doesn't. Um, yeah, Herzog's film, I, I felt, was unfortunately a little sycophantic. He, yeah, Herzog just couldn't emerge out of, I don't know what it is. I mean, basically a certain, I don't know, generational kind of gratitude. This is definitely comes from a position of like healthy skepticism. And there was one motif, motif that I kind of liked, which is, early on when they're just introducing Gorbachev's situation, which is, uh, as I understand it, he lives in a state-owned house, uh, you know, looks fairly comfortable. Some friends bought him an elevator so he can go from one floor to the next. Um, but he has a cat. Yeah. And I just immediately, yeah. I just immediately felt like, you know, there was like a parallel there. It's like, here's the house cat, you know, that he may have once been, you know, the ruler of the, literally largest country on earth uh and you know part of just you know armageddon scale negotiations uh stakes 
but now he's sort of a house cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, there's an element of King Lear about it as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, that's Gorbachev Heaven. Um, I have to say, I can't resist asking about a movie that you brought up, and that is Fellini's actual final feature, which I have to admit, sort of foolishly, I remember and um, and the ship sailed on as being his last, but that's just wrong. <laughs> you, in fact, have seen the uh, the last one. Uh, if, I mean, if you can tell me about it. Yeah, this this turned up on, on Mubi, um, and um, it's uh, his final film, The Voice of the Moon, which wasn't widely distributed, and I can absolutely see why, because it's, it's you know, it, it is on, on the absolute borders of incoherence. It is like a series of dreams stitched together with a kind of satirical thread about um, the, the follies of the modern world, uh, which Fellini had clearly, you know, commented on plenty and more trenchantly throughout his career. It does feel slightly like the film of an old man fetching about the world. And I say this not because of Fellini's age and not because it feels like a tired film, but because there is actually a character who is an old man who is fetching about the state of the world from a kind of, you know, deluded, paranoid position. And it's a film about delusion and paranoia, but it's also a film about, you know, the poetic idea of the holy fool who is played by Roberto Benigni. And normally I, I, I recoil absolutely at any contact with Roberto Benigni, who, who, among other things, you know, made the most horrifying mistake of a Holocaust film imaginable. But... Don't remind me. <laughs> no, well, you know, in this... Well, put it this way, it was no son of Saul. Uh but in, in this film, he's actually sort of strangely um, downbeat. He's strangely restrained and almost kind of likable. You know, he is that sort of Fellini clown figure. Um, and he wanders through the world looking bemused at its wonders and its horrors. And there's sort of an extraordinary sequence where he turns up at this house in, in the middle of the country. And it's this massive cavernous disco where everyone is dancing to Michael Jackson of course it's that it's that scene that you get in kind of 80s films where directors of a certain age had this idea about what dance floors are like where of course everyone is in spiky hair and leather and studs and you know they kind of hate it as a sort of spectacle of narcissism, but they're also sort of fascinated by it as well. And he's indulged himself in this kind of ridiculous overpopulated dance scene, which goes on and on forever. <laughs> but it's, it, it's not a good film, I don't think, by, by any standards, certainly not by Fellini's standards. But you watch Riveted. I mean, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I don't think he was ever able to make a boring film. It has this sort of frenetic, completely uncontrolled energy, but it's, you know, it's Fellini, nevertheless, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it is It is funny how, maybe it's just my imagination, but I do have a sense that, you know, some of the, the great lions of the, of the art house, like Fellini, and, and to some extent, even Bergman, you know, you, you, there's a way that you can take 
take them for granted and then you just have to watch or rewatch something, uh, you know, and, 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 and realize uh, again there, there might be something there. Yeah, well, well, actually, you know, the great thing about some of those late films is that, you know, so many of those great directors, Bergman, Alain René, you know, they did continue to make great films right at the end, but they always made, you know, kind of small films in a minor key. Not Fellini, you know, he went the full, <laughs> for full Fellini, you know, he went out the way he wanted to, you know, with a kind of relentless, loud blast. Well, that that actually maybe that's that's a good note for for us to to go out, go out on. I, I like the idea of uh, the kind of Fellini, um, you know, conga line uh, out of out of the podcast. Thank you again for as always for a wonderful conversation, uh, and now also just a viewing list because I definitely uh, want to see uh, all the films you've been talking about. In, in any case, um, we'll talk again, and who knows? Maybe at some point we will actually record one of these again in person. <laughs> that would be great. I hope so. Anyway, it's been fun. Welcome back to The Last Thing I Saw. We are continuing to talk about these small axe films because it's pretty hard to talk about five movies uh, by Steve McQueen uh, in just one conversation. So since we've talked a little bit about uh, Lover's Rock and Mangrove, I'm going to dive into the three others, Red, White, and Blue, Alex Weedle, and Education. Uh, and for this conversation, I have another voice on, on the podcast. And I was just basically inspired after reading an essay um, that he wrote uh, on Reverse Shot. Um, and that is uh, Nicholas Russell. Welcome, Nicholas. Hey, thanks for having me. You've seen all the Small Axe films, um, partly at New York Film Festival and then partly later on. Is that right? Yeah, so for the New York Film Festival, they were showing Lover's Rock, Mangrove, and Red, White, and Blue, and that was those are the films that the piece in reverse shot is based around. I didn't see the last two uh Alex Weedle and education until a little bit later. Yeah. Well, could you tell us a bit about uh, us? I mean, just people listening, which includes me, about your essay. I encourage everyone to read it in full on Reverse Shop, but if you could just give us a bit of an uh, overview. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a fan of a few of his movies. I wouldn't say I'm like an outright Steve McQueen fan, but when I was talking to my editor about covering one of them red white and blue was the main one and he gave me the option to either write about them individually or write about them in one piece and i opted to do them in one piece because obviously like the small acts anthology even though there are no recurring characters between sections uh you know is of a piece geographically you know temporally culturally so Film festival criticism is interesting in that you, if you're watching something that hasn't screened at another festival yet, you're kind of sticking your neck out depending on what you're saying about those films. Mm. Um, And I didn't necessarily think that I was being overly critical, but in the weeks since they've become publicly available, 
<laughs> I'm definitely in the minority of people who have more critical things to say about those movies. I mean, the main thing that I talk about in the essay is really like how the importance of the project is being over and understated in a few ways, um, which we can talk about. But they're rife with cliches that I found to be really distracting and just details that are small, but the accretion of which, you know, contributes to this feeling of something being a little off in the portrayal of the characters on screen. Yeah, I think it varies a little, I guess, for each one in, in, in your essay. So basically, the cliche is centering on resistance uh, and also the figures and the portrayal of, of, of racism. And that's what seemed to make it not really have the same impact for youth. Yeah, it, it's one of those things where films like these are hard to talk about because it seems often like everyone is speaking in, I wouldn't say hyperbolic tones, but either overly laudatory or people say it was fine. <laughs> and I think the importance of these movies as a project of re of of correcting history and presenting a glimpse and a perspective that hasn't been there before. Uh, I think that on its own is worthwhile. And I also think that it's worth noting that I know as an American, I'm missing a lot of context here purely by the presentation. Like, so those movies are available for streaming here, but in Britain, they're, they're being shown on the BBC, like they're on television it's still optional, obviously, but it's being broadcast and like supported in a very big way there. And, you know, the legacy of the BBC and any other sort of imperial arm of Britain that has had a historically racist purview to, to then come to the present and have those films, which are extremely critical of the British government, of, you know, white society in the 60s and 80s, you know, to have those films be shown now in, on that platform is pretty disruptive in a really cool and interesting way. There are two conversations to be had. There's that one. There's the sort of mm -hmm. the importance of the project being made. And then there's the project itself and what it seeks to accomplish and what it actually accomplishes. And I think that with Mangrove, there are two movies in there, one of which is far more compelling than the other. The first one is, you know, story of this restaurant in Notting Hill that is constantly harassed by the police for made-up charges, just an excuse for the police to raid the restaurant over and over again. And they use, you know, all these racist uh, reasons saying like they're trading drugs or it's a brothel, you know, all these things. And the owner of the mangrove is constantly being like, you know, the worst thing we do here is like, you know, we sell spicy food, which you guys don't like. And like, it's a gathering place for the West Indian community, which I think is the main threat. That on its own, you know, is an interesting plot line, but the way that it's presented is so the officers who are all white are so cartoonishly <laughs> villainous. It's not that those people don't exist. And I say this in the essay, it's like those people are real. It's just that 
you are operating by different rules when you're putting it on screen and not everything can be a one-to-one to reality and then make it believable. And I think that like the officers in the movie, whether or not they are based in reality, and I, and I believe that they are, their presentation is so outlandish and so seemingly devoid of genesis in terms of like why they're acting the way that they are that they no longer register as people with motives and are just they become a a sort of device against which the main characters are you know railing against and at that point the story no longer becomes as human as i think steve mcqueen and his writers were hoping it would be and again like I think also you are going to have different mileage depending on your own experience with police. If you're white, if you are not black, you might have a different context. And I think because, you know, Steve McQueen in the press for these films has gone on to say multiple times that these films are extremely personal to him and that shows on screen, there is a assumption of familiarity in terms of like black people having gone through situations like that um gone through harassment like that heard the things that the people the the police officers say in these movies it's just that just because you have those things there doesn't automatically make them work in mangrove i i draw a comparison in the essay to hidden figures only insofar as the way that like you could probably take the same racist people who are portrayed in Hidden Figures and transpose them into Mangrove and they would s- essentially serve the same purpose. There's like a lack of nuance there. And I'm not calling for like <laughs> nuanced depictions of racists. I just think that it is a little bit dishonest if you're going for the, the easy, cheap sort of way of portraying them, which is like these despicable, snarling, goblin-like people who dream day and night of harassing and brutalizing black people yeah and it's a really interesting point and i mean what's what's almost the most terrifying is that people just do terrible stuff you know the police officers just do it and it's not as if you have the satisfaction of an explanation uh, not that that would mean anything but just you know explaining their behavior they just are suddenly rushing the car with a gun you know yeah you definitely hit on something which extends beyond the portrayal of racist insofar as the like project of small acts i think that steve mcqueen is an extremely talented filmmaker who is far more adept at portraying things without dialogue than he is with dialogue and it like this is across the board and kind of Mm. extends beyond small acts is that like he has a very lyrical and um poetic eye and when he's allowed when he allows himself to indulge in that largely dialogue-free stream of consciousness way of filming, which is a lot of Lover's Rock, and which is like Lover's Rock is the standout piece of the anthology. I think I'm in agreement with like almost every critic there. Like one, because it is so unusual for Steve McQueen, who, you know, his filmography is by and large pretty brutal to have him indulge in mm you know, sort of levity and warmth and sensuality in, in the way that he does on that film. But even in other places, like uh, in education, 
you know, that film is the most personal to Steve McQueen, according to an interview he did with Sight and Sound, because it's about his experience in the British educational system and how they had these special needs schools that were largely designed to put disabled and non-white students to separate them from the rest of the student population and basically ensure that they don't get an adequate indica- uh, education. And like that film succeeds so much more when you're just allowed to observe things happen. There's a great moment around the middle of the movie where the main character, this young boy, is just like floating in his bathtub and it goes on for at least a minute, unbroken shot, just him staring at the ceiling. And I was like leaning forward at that moment. Mm. Moments like that can, especially when they are embedded within the movie that they're in, can speak so much more and mean so many more things than someone, you know, speaking as if they're reading off from a PSA, which is kind of what happens in Mangrove. And in a few other places, I think like another criticism of the anthology as a whole is that like the dialogue is so, the dialogue is really contemporary. Like I know that Steve McQueen and his writers are basing these things off of historical fact, but it's either the delivery, what they're saying or how they're saying it that pulls or like pulled me out of the viewing experience because it just felt like they were trying really hard to draw parallels to the present day and in doing so you raise this question of like okay um if you're trying to do that implicitly why not do it explicitly at that point they're already getting so close to basically saying like this is a timeless uh and hallowed sort of like area of cinema that you know will always be talked about the protest film, the film about, you know, making change in institutions, the the need to fight back and for marginalized communities, especially black communities to, to stand up for themselves. And it's like, that is true. But I think by dint of the fact that the film exists on its own is already doing that and is already making those parallels. I think when a viewer is allowed to just watch something and draw those conclusions and parallels for themselves, it it ends up being more profound than someone on screen being like, one man can change the course of history or something, which is like pretty much what someone says in Mangrove. <laughs> yeah, I, well, just to stick with, uh, with education, I mean, it's interesting because the movie seems to be showing some of those messages uh, partly because the, that's almost what the movie is is about. It's about the communication of awareness or of consciousness, I guess. So you have these scenes where, uh, I guess, a kind of a- activist figure is is addressing an audience. In other words, McQueen is like staging those moments of, here's what the problem is. Here's how we need to solve it. That That's maybe the, the purpose of this particular episode, but it's not so much the case for other episodes that they have to be presented in, the, in that way. I, I don't know if that, that makes sense. No, that makes sense. I feel like education is interesting because, and it might be a perfect sort of litmus for the rest of the series, wherein the mm. activist character played by uh, Josette Simon, when she comes in, the, the, the whole movie like picks up, like the whole movie really starts moving. 
I found her to be magnetic in that role. She owns that material. She owns what she's saying. You believe her. And I think that's, that is one of the things I struggled with with most of these movies is that I didn't believe a lot of the people who were playing the characters they were beyond just agreeing with the material, but like actually like embodying Mm. it and having that come out in the way that they're talking. I think Josette Simon really like out of a very large and talented cast, I think she, she was really the first time where I was like, Whoa, like more of that, like have more of her. All of her scenes are great in that movie. It's, it's sort of a shame because, because education is about an hour, a little over an hour. Um, she comes in like halfway through and her parts are, you know, they're great. And she gets to have like a really moving speech that basically talks about the way that the British government and the educational system are intentionally failing children of immigrants and black parents. And how if they're going to find a solution, they're going to have to do it themselves, whether that means signing petitions or just, resorting to teaching their children at home. And she has such a presence in that movie in a way that is absent in other ones. As an example, let's take Red, White, and Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Which, you know, stars John Boyega as Leroy Logan, who was in a real-life Black British police officer. The movie charts his relationship with his father and the genesis of his desire to join the police force. I think for any black person watching that movie, the massive question mark before you even start watching it is like, why the hell would a black person want to be a police officer? And it's a, it's a good question. Like it's a, it's a question that you don't often see answered or at least entertained head on. You know, there have been plenty of black police officers portrayed in movies. You know, I think probably the go-to one for a lot of people would be Denzel Washington and Training Day. But there's never really a larger conversation as to why or what they are trying to do. And, you know, my dad is a black police officer has been for almost 20 years. The parlance that's, you know, circulated amongst him and his friends who are also black police officers is this is the same um, thing that uh, John Boyega's character says in Red, White, and Blue, which is that, you know, they want to change the system from the inside, that the fact that they are there means something and that they will effect change and, um, and be the uh, sort of beacon for other people. Red, white, and blue shows that that's like not possible, (laughs) Um, but Mm. is obviously extremely admirable of its subject, no matter what. I think it's probably the most interesting movie in the anthology because it seems to be at like in turmoil with itself about what it wants to say at the same time that I think it really believes in the things that John Boyega is saying, where he's like, you know, police are intentionally handicapping our communities and brutalizing our community members and are interested in our demise and that needs to stop and we need to find a way to do it. When he turns to the idea after his father is assaulted by two police officers for misparking his car, and that's the reason why uh, John Boyega's character wants to join the police force, you know, you see this odd kind of 
exceptionalism in his character be borne out as a as a marker of almost as if it's like if only we had police officers who were like that if only we had police officers like John Boyega's character who were smart driven and um, dedicated to justice and who had an interesting curiosity in the communities that they serve we would be better off I I think that a lot of people probably share that view I don't I think like and I and I'm not sure that Steve McQueen does either. <laughs> like uh mm. the ultimate, you know, outcome of that movie is that after being sort of hamstrung by the uh, chief officer in the precinct that he works in repeatedly, and after the only other non-white officer quits from harassment and just, you know the sort of pressure and kind of indignity of being amongst a largely white place that demeans them at like every point. John Boyega's character gets to have one triumphant moment at the end where he catches his guy and does it single-handedly because he calls in for backup and no one comes to him to apprehend the person that he's chasing. And at that moment, I was really like, Oh, okay. So this is like a very, this is supposed to be like a hero's portrayal. Like this person is supposed to be a heroic guy and it just doesn't wash. I think part of it is because like John Boyega in his, you know, post Star Wars attempt to like sort of reorient his career and do something a little bit more serious, you know, is giving it his all in this sort of classic acting kind of way there's a lot of uh, capital a acting from him <laughs> there's a lot of anguish there's a lot of anger you know there's a lot of um frustration and him being the talented actor that he is that comes through but it also comes through that he's like really pushing it like that the intention is there you can see the work being done sometimes that's fine you know if you have other elements in the movie to to help but with these movies i think one of the things i saw was largely the amount of effort being put into making it seem like they were just presenting something and i think in that regard it reveals the uh, the hinges of the way that a lot of these movies are working and i think that comes through in the details you know i think if people had maybe a little bit more time to be used to the costumes they were wearing <laughs> i one of the things i was talking about with someone was like how it kind of seems like not everyone is very is from this period in a way that makes it seem like they just put on their costumes like before they started rolling i'm sure that's not true but i think they largely didn't get to a point where it looks like people are comfortable with what they're wearing or what they're saying like and i think those things add up like the the production design is rendered so vividly and I think a lot of it is rendered from memory which I think is the smart thing to do you know instead of going for absolute historical accuracy you you mix in the subjective which you know is kind of what cinema Mm. like is most adept at doing and the details of the small acts anthology are beautiful you know when it becomes about black life and the tactile nature of black individuality, you know, Steve McQueen shines there and his cinematographer, they, they really capture something that feels revolutionary, not because it's about like 
political revolution per se, but because to have someone with an eye towards lighting black skin correctly, color grading it correctly, to lavish the attention that Steve McQueen does on his subjects, like that on its own is revolutionary. And, and I don't just mean that in like a condescending, I don't mean that in a condescending way at all. I think like it may be that the filmmakers sort of underestimated the power of that alone and, and didn't lean into that as much as they could have. Doreen St. Felix from the New Yorker in her review of the same three small acts movies that were screened at New York film festival talks about the power of seeing these movies of, of seeing what's on screen of seeing black black characters not light skin characters like black characters on screen and to have the movies be about them you know that on its own is so important and is something that I kept coming back to when I was writing that piece for reverse shot is like that might be the takeaway for some people is just the fact that they're there and that they are so lovingly rendered that might be enough for people. And if it is, great. But when you dig into it, you know, in my opinion, there was so much more that they could have done that explored the maybe not obvious sort of narrative choice or character beat choice. You know, I think like if you've seen enough movies with racists in them, you kind of know how they work. Like, there is hmm. the setup where everyone's happy and you see the black people smiling and like, oh, wow, like, look, you know, there's community, there's family, there's there's camaraderie. And then then the racists come in and beat people up and it becomes about, oh, well, why can't we, <laughs> why can't they have what they had before? Like, why, isn't it a shame that they aren't allowed to do that? And like, that is like the truth of the situation that's the truth of now but again when you are transposing that when you are adapting that into the cinematic form it can't be one-to-one and at a certain point you can see the strings being pulled and it feels less pleasurable to be manipulated like that wherein you you know that there is an emotional beat or an emotional goal that the filmmaker is working towards that depending on how much you can see them doing it, you might not be so willing to go on that journey. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's really interesting. I mean, that it, it's almost as if he did small acts as a way of making many attempts, you know? Uh, and so it's, it's like almost like not putting all your eggs in, in the basket of one story or, or one, uh, I, I, I don't know, one one degree of, of political consciousness, because I almost think that the they all kind of are, are variations on, on how how you might engage with with an audience in, in a way. Um, I, I, I wonder if we could just talk a bit about Alex Weedle, which is one movie we haven't haven't talked about yet, because that's it's a story of kind of engaging with with. I mean, it's about an orphan uh, kind of engaging with culture and, and a heritage that he hadn't been given the chance to really uh, in, until then. Um, so I'm kind of wondering, I'm very curious to hear how that, how you viewed uh, that particular movie too. Well, okay. In order to talk about Alex Weedle, I feel like we should at least address the format of the small acts anthology, which is that there's been like this weird 
sort of pedantic debate going around about whether or not these this is a sh- limited series, like a TV series, oh, right. or if these are movies. I think because two of the films are longer than 60 minutes. <laughs> um, one is like an hour and a half. Or no, one is two hours, and one is like hour 20. That's Mangrove and Red, White, and Blue. Those are the longest ones out of five. The rest are like 60 to 70 minutes. So, you know, an hour of prestige television, if you're making that sort of comparison. I'm bringing it up because these subjects, you could honestly, I think, successfully make an anthology or series about any one of these movies. There's a lot of material there. There's a lot of rich sort of thematic Mm -hmm. and, you know, character driven story there. And I think a lot of them are underserved by the length of time with which their respective stories are given. I think Alex Weedle is a good example of that. Alex Weedle is a real person. He was in the writer's room for Small Acts. And according to Steve McQueen, again, in that interview with Sight and Sound, he talks about how when they were assembling the writer's room and trying to, you know, pick the stories that they were going to tell... Steve McQueen at one point was like, hey, Alex, I don't know. Like, why don't we just, why don't we talk about you? Like, your your story is pretty important and, and interesting. And so that's how that kind of came to be. What you see on screen is a little frustrating in that I think there's a lot of, I'll borrow a term that one of my creative writing mentors likes to say a lot, which is the small X movies clear their throats at the beginning of the movies a lot. <laughs> uh. They're laying out the pieces that are going to be, come and play, but often in such a way where you can tell that's what they're doing. <laughs> you can tell that they're setting something up. You can tell that, oh, this is going to come back later, or that's a resonant line of dialogue. Remember that. And because of that, you, it seems like stage setting and, and less like immersion. There are a lot of scenes you know, especially at the beginning of Alex Weedle, that are being primed for resonance later on in such a way that you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> I'm like, this is this is going to be the key for something later. And there are movies like that. Like, I think you could take a page out of the sort of David Fincher book, which is like, you know, the first scene in a movie should tell you how to watch the movie. Mm. I think the first few scenes of... Alex Weedle are not necessarily telling you how to watch the movie, but are trying to prepare you for something that's going to happen later. And you're not really sure what that is. I think it takes more, in my opinion, than simply showing someone for the audience to be interested in them, especially if they are not going to be a conventionally charismatic lead character. I think that Alex Weedle is a good example of you are thrown in head first into a context that you don't really have much uh, sort of leeway with. Like you are shown him going to prison. He doesn't talk. And when he gets his cellmate, who is this older West Indian guy who (laughs) talks about how he's on a hunger, hunger strike and shits a lot (laughs) like like that's like the first thing that they talk about is like hey sorry it smells in here i take a shit a lot like i'm gonna take the bottom bunk because like i'm gonna be going to the bathroom all the time it's like okay like 
there's a tactile sort of uh, visceral reaction there where you're like, oh shit, that's like, that sucks. And also, you know, for a second, you know, drew me back to Hunger where, uh, you know, that movie is all about a hunger strike in prison. Yeah. And sort of deals with the, the very like physical anguish inducing uh, consequences of like that action. With Alex Weedle, you you have something that is symptomatic of, of a few movies in the Small Axe trilogy where you are presented with the character as they are in the present, the present of the movie, and then they go back. They go back to the context of how they came to be like that, how they got to that situation. We flash back to Alex Weedle in school. We flash back to Alex Weedle in the like foster home where he is regularly and viciously abused by like the headmistress there and throughout that you uh, you follow him as he finds community with other black people and there is this parallax because he comes into a heavily like tight-knit west indian community and he is like this they keep comparing him to an alien because you know he doesn't have the accent he has no sort of cultural reference for a lot of the things that they're talking about and is very green there's a part where he's walking with his friend and a police officer passes by and he like says hello and his friend is like what the hell are you doing like why are you doing that and alex Weedle's like you know they're here to help you blah 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 and it's like i (laughs) at that point i was like oh this is the kind of movie where you know you watch them harden into the like tough person that they become and often the (laughs) the mistake that a lot of movies that are like that make is like they make them too stupid at first to the point where you're like wow okay like you know nothing and you like you were born yesterday and like that point in the movie where he's like oh officers are here to help you i was like okay i don't believe for a second that this is something this dude said i don't even care if he will like if he wants to call me up and say that that actually happened like in the context of the way that it's shown in the movie it is so ridiculous (laughs) and so cringe inducing that it does not accomplish the sort of character backstory that it wants to where you're like oh wow he really doesn't understand he's like really doesn't like have right. context for this it, it it just it becomes wait a second you've been brutalized your entire childhood by white people in authority and then but you don't extend that to white police officers like that's really strange right and seems so incongruous with what what is being presented that it's not that it shouldn't have been there, but, you know, there's a choice being made where you're either going to show a character as they gradually become aware of the world as it is, as harsh and racist as it is. You don't need to make them so naive at the beginning that it's as if they've never <laughs> seen, <laughs> they've never considered their uh, right. skin color before. You know, there's a part mm-hmm. in the barbershop when Alex Field's getting his hair cut. They're talking about their African roots. And, you know, he's like, you're African. And Alex Weedle's like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, you are. Like, you're part of this culture. You're part of the diaspora. And that is not a revolutionary conversation. Like, that is that is real. That is, I've seen that conversation countless times with, you know, 
really sheltered black kids who are deprived of the, their social and cultural context and don't see themselves reflected in other communities like that. But the way that it's done in Alex Weedle is so confusingly portrayed that it becomes a sort of dangling participle to me when you watch the rest of the movie where, you know, there are so many more interesting ideas there. One of which is the, uh, the importance of accents in the small axe anthology. You see this a lot. Mm. You see a lot of code switching where you have black kids born in London who have a British accent, but then switch to a West Indian accent when they're around certain people, often between words, often within the same sentence, you know, there's something there that I really, I was so fascinated by. And you see that in Alex Weedle because he has like a pretty traditional London accent. And then later in the movie, you see him speaking with this West Indian accent and it's commented upon, like, as he's learning the accent, you know, at one point someone says, you know, your accent's a little English. It's a little too English, but like, you know, points for trying. Like that way of the character immersing himself in the environment of of learning how to navigate and find his place in this culture, that way of showing how he has changed to me is like so much more effective than than having an extant character be like, this is what you're getting wrong. And like, this is what you're not getting. Like, these are the stakes. <laughs> um, right. There's nothing wrong with a character selling you the stakes. It's just that like, if you're going to do that, you know, that's exposition. That's exposition that needs to be motivated beyond just the sort of like, liner notes of the movie i feel like alex weedle is probably the most confusing movie in the small x anthology because there are so many things that happen and i couldn't tell if this was because of the person playing alex weedle or just because his story requires more than like an hour to be told but like by the end of it I was like, okay, so this is a story about someone learning something about the world and about themselves. But the thing that they learn about themselves, which is, I think that he, you know, he loves music. Music is a big part of that movie and the series as a whole. And he finds his footing as a songwriter and as a DJ, I think. That comes, I'm, I'm foggy on it because it comes like at the end of the movie and yeah. is presented as like a very, very big part of who he is that I was like, wait, is that supposed to be like the main beat of his character is that he, he is this, that, that is his motivation is music is, is wanting to use music to talk about the political situation that's happening. You know, there's a part that we see him writing these lyrics about that these anti-police lyrics after a bomb goes off or after a fire happens in this black community where a bunch of people die. And it's the most moving part of the entire episode because at that point you have this and again, this is this is speaking to C. McQueen's strengths as like as a person who understands montage and understands the power of juxtaposition of images. It's like 
you have this point after this tragedy happens where it's an extended sequence of black and white photographs from the actual mm. event and from the march that happens afterwards being um, played with this sort of spoken word piece being narrated about that situation, about being Black in Britain, about the role of the police in the community. And it stops the whole movie in a good way. It really like, yeah, it becomes austere in this way where you really are paying attention and you are so, you're left with this vacuum of feeling where you're like, oh my God, like this is, this is awful. Like I was really struck by like, wow, I can't believe I never learned about this. Like, I can't believe that similar images that we've seen in an American context apply elsewhere. Like that's a really myopic thing to say, but like, I think like, you know, that is one of the effects of like really deftly portrayed like fictional representations of real things is like, you're like, you draw the parallel between what you know and what you don't know. And like, I think, that scene is like one of the most effective scenes in the entire anthology is like, wow, like here's the real thing. Here are images of the real thing. And instead of orchestrating them with big music or with high emotion and sort of traditionally dramatic or melodramatic performance, you, you strip all that away. You just show the images and you have this, this poem, this piece being spoken over it. And it's like all you need. And it's like, you know, it's like moments like that where I was like, wow, like here's a glimpse into what the most potent version of Small Axe is. Um, And, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air, even though it's extremely devastating. But then it makes you lament like what could have been for the rest of the series and certainly for the rest of Alex Weedle. It's like, and then you go back to the sort of fictionalized narrative wherein, you know, he finally learns to look up his history and to do his reading and to educate himself. There's this, like, whole scene when he's in prison where his cellmate's like, you have to educate yourself. You can't rely on the historical record that you've been given. You have to look elsewhere. You have to kind of stick your neck out to find the truth between the cracks. And it's like, okay, like... It comes at the end, so there's like a there's a sense of like the origin story sort of widescreen kind of like oh this is who this person was and this is how this is the moment where they become who they are. But because you don't know who Alex Weedle is, like it's like oh okay he's he's going through a change, but I don't have the context for what that change means in present day, and it has that beat, it has that feeling of like a biopic where it's like you're going to it because you will know who this person is and you want to see how they became that person. And you kind of see that at the end with like the title cards where they like tell you about, you know, Alex Weedle goes on to write a lot of books and receive this award and, you know, he becomes important to the culture, but because that comes at the end after everything you've seen, it's kind of like, 
you're like, oh, that's who that person was. Great. Instead of being like, wow, this is the person that I was familiar with at the beginning and this is how they got there. Yeah. It kind of doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, no, I just, I, I agree that, I mean, the sequence of the whole ending, I mean, uh, is, is, is also just kind of interesting, you know, the way it frames it. How did you take the timeline exactly? Yeah, I feel like I took the ending to be, I assumed that it was like after he got out of prison. Because, you know, his he sees his friend on the park bench and he's like, where have you been? And it's like, okay, so he's been in prison. That being said, I think like you hit on something, which is that, and we can talk about like, you know, the physical sort of like practical ways that you, that these movies show time passing, you know, which is like the costumes change, the accents change, they do or don't have facial hair, like they carry themselves a certain way. With Alex Weedle, it's interesting because I just think that lead actor was not ready for that role. I think they were relying on the physicality of his acting more than his like sort of facial expressions, um, which can be, you know, like an extremely effective way of bringing a character to life. I think that actor felt really a one note to me in a way that I think might have sapped a lot of magnetism and sort of understanding from the situation that he was in. I think that like he has a presence about him and a willingness, you know, an eagerness. He has the energy for it. But in the moments where he, what he is doing is supposed to signal to something greater when he is fighting against his cellmate because he's angry at him for shitting all the time and like, or, you know, getting in fights with his teachers at school. You see this a lot. He fights a lot. And I think that would, you know, it's supposed to mean he is unhappy with his surroundings. He's, he's unhappy with himself. He doesn't know where he came from because he uh, doesn't know his parents. He, he is internally restless and unhappy. There's a part where he, it's like, the I think, one of the most moving parts of the movie where he uh, he is invited over to a friend's place for dinner and he experiences this warmth of welcoming what i thought to be a really moving thing of like you know when the diaspora when members of the diaspora like kind of welcome you in as one of their own he's given a plate of food and you know he hears like this very normal day-to-day family conversation with these people and he's like smack in the middle of it and afterwards he he walks home and he's crying obviously it's a really moving scene at the same time, you know, the work of showing how that moment changes or plays out on the character's body does not come through with that actor. There's a lack of a depth in terms of how certain characters are embodied throughout the anthology that makes it to my mind, like, you know, a little not believable. The camera is going to capture everything, right? The camera is going to see really small details. And it's also going to see when they're not there. Yeah, just I just want to mention another interesting scene in Alex Weedle, which I think might show also what you're, you're saying. It puts a big burden on the actor. You remember when he's thrown to the ground in the prison and he's just kind of lying there, I mean, almost just in shell shock. And, mm-hmm. you know, his eyes are open and, and the camera just zooms in and then slowly zooms out again. It's we're just in this space, of, yeah. I guess, total shock, which like with the camera, I'm feeling 
but I, I could see where that's just, it's a big challenge to have to like respond to that staging. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a tough scene. No, I, I agree. It's like, there's, there's another example of that in Mangrove after the restaurant has, it's like for the nth time has been raided by the police and the camera's on the floor and like the camera lingers after the police run out and all this shit's been knocked over. It lingers on, you know, these items on the floor that are like moving um, after like this turmoil and ruckus and the camera just stays there and you, you're meant to sit with that moment. And you're so clearly meant to sit with that moment <laughs> that, and like, to me, it was like, I was like, okay, so this is a big shot. It's always easy to tell when there's a big shot, usually because there's no cuts. But like when the camera doesn't cut and just stays there and you're in that stillness, you know, it's signaling something. And like, this is so pedantic to say this, like, obviously it's supposed to signal something. But in the context of Mangrove, it's like, okay, I understand the severity of the situation but something before that moment has not been effectively communicated to the point where it doesn't really earn that scene. It doesn't earn that shot to me. I know that like that scene that has been talked about by a few people, again, uh, one of them being Dorian St. Felix at the New Yorker. She talks about that moment and it's a big risk. I think, you know, when you hang a lot on a shot that like, if it doesn't pay off, then it just, it, it either becomes so self-aware that you are like okay like when is this going to be over or you're like why are we still here the shot you're talking about Alex Weedle is a perfect example of that where it's like it almost feels like you're waiting for something to happen you see him in this empty space he's got a straight jacket on you know like he has Mm. just been removed from class in like in this extremely outsized way where you know you come to that scene without any without having seen anything before you think he's in a mental institution you think he's in prison but no he's in school like that like he's in school and they put him in a straitjacket like that like talking about it is so it's already um jarring enough but when you watch it you have so many other questions and so many other like emotions that when that shot happens it feels vacant. It feels like it's not, it's devoid of the meaning that it so clearly wants to be full of. It is not to be underestimated the degree to which, you know, good actors respond to the camera being really close to their face. Yeah. Yeah. So we've talked about, I guess, uh, Alex Weedle, uh, Red, White, and Blue, and education. It's been really great just going through each one in depth like this, because that's another thing that often happens when you make a movie that's lots of parts like this. It's, you know, as you said in the beginning, people kind of uh, end up not entirely maybe engaging with it as much. So I don't know. I found this really great. Do you have any, uh, any, any closing thoughts about the series or particular films or, or anything at all? Um, you know, for the series as a whole, I feel like, I do think like there are real moments where it shines and a lot of that has to do with the casting in certain places. You know, I think the problem really is that because there's so much going on, there are so many people involved. There are so many moments. um, They are 
to my mind, fewer and far between than they would be in a more cohesive anthology. What you were saying earlier about how, you know, it seemed like Steve McQueen is like trying to do as many things as possible, maybe dabbling in different genres and trying to tell as many stories as possible. I think that is true. You know, I think that, and it it speaks to the ambition of the project. You know, I think, you know, he's definitely Mm -hmm. not pulling any punches. He's really swinging. Um, I just think that these projects deserve to be better than they are. I think they're um, incredibly valuable. I just think, you know, when it comes to talking about the merit of a project versus um, its artistry, you know, I think those are different conversations and on the level of how these movies function as standalone stories divorced from their sort of media marketing promotional context, you know, trying to think about how, how we would view these movies 10 years from now, 15 years from now, you know, maybe then that will be the more, the most honest way to look at them, you know, like, instead of you know within the zeitgeist and like within the like beginning of the conversation that these movies will begin but as they stand now especially like given that they're coming out at the end of this extremely turbulent upsetting year you know i write in the the essay basically being like you know i hope that we can that it will be possible to view these movies outside of the context in which they are being released which might seem anathema to quote unquote the point of the movies you know they're obviously meant to be Mm. commenting on something that is both contemporary and old but i do think it hampers the uh viewing experience a little bit when that is the thing that someone is bringing into the viewing experience um it seems like even steve mcqueen and his writers are doing that within the text of the films you know they are conscious of the moment they are making these films and and it shows and i think that at its worst points can be like really distracting and sort of um undercut the ambition of what they're trying to do um but yeah, yeah i just i guess i like i don't want to seem so overly critical of the series as to say like you know these movies are bad and like they're, <laughs> you know like yeah you know, no. like wow like this is this is overrated i think like some versions of the conversation are definitely overrated but i think that's that has largely to do with the where these movies are coming into in the conversation like on an industry level and sort of historically you know i think the more movies we have like these the better because we will then be able to accurately talk about them instead of burdening them with importance. And like Steve McQueen's talked about this, like, you know, he, he welcomes the burden of representation. He welcomes the burden of trailblazing and and telling these stories because someone needs to do it. It's a double-edged sword and it doesn't inculcate you from the finer or more granular aspects of criticism for a project like this. So, yeah, well, yeah, that's, it's, it's, there's a lot there and we also have time, I guess, a byproduct of having a behemoth like Amazon uh, putting them out is that they'll be there for for millions of people to look at uh, and to to revisit. So um, 
thanks again for for coming on and and everyone can go right to a reverse shot where uh, the uh the essay he wrote is is on there and yeah obviously more to come as well from in your in your other writing uh but thanks again yeah thank you so much you've been listening to the last thing i saw with your host nicholas rapold for a list of the movies discussed in this episode and other writing sign up for my newsletter at rapold.substack.com Thank you for listening.